Good morning, good morning. What does it mean to be a die-hard fan? I don't know about you guys, but I love soccer. And so anybody who knows anything about soccer knows that the Premier League started this weekend. I could go on and on about like every little point I'm bringing up here, so I got to really hone it in now because I know there's a lot of soccer lovers in this church family. Um, John Bronson and I coached. We coached together for a little while. Um, absolutely love the game. John's an Arsenal fan. That's okay. We can still have fellowship. I'm Man City. Man City. I liked Man City before they got good, so I don't want to hear anybody saying you're a bandwagon fan. I was on board well before they started carrying on their dynasty. So, but what does it mean to be a die-hard fan? What does it really mean? I found this, um, uh, a columnist, it's a little bit old, but she wrote, um, die-hard fans are those that watch every game. And if they can't watch it, they listen to it on the radio or they read about it in the sports section. Those people that if you were to call them at this very point in time, provided they're not working, you can bet they're sitting in front of a computer reading stats or reading the paper about an article about their team. That person, when their team loses, their whole face falls. That person that when their team is inches from greatness and falls short or is close to, they're reduced to tears. That person that can name all the numbers in terms of stats off the top of their head without blinking once. People that say things like, we'll get them next time, every time, truly believing it in their heart, even though the odds are great that they won't. People that can have intelligent conversations about their sport, but still get mad as hell when others insult their team. Regardless of whether the team makes the playoffs or not, they still call it a good season. Are you with me? Die-hard fans, right? Someone who watches the season end in misery and heartbreak. But you can bet that at the beginning of the next season, there they will be. John, Arsenal. Hoping this one is better. <laughs> These are the real die-hard fans. People who have nothing but love in their heart for the sport as a whole, but especially for their team. What are you a fan of? Maybe it's uh, beyond sports, so it's a movies, or, or the MCU, the actors. Um, we, we were fans of all kinds of things. Who or what for? As compelling as it is to be, you know, read this kind of fan, and we all aspire to be, no one aspires to be a bandwagon fan. Everyone aspires to be a diehard fan. But as compelling as that is, to be so totally for a team or for a band or for an actor or for a movie or uh, anything along those lines. These characterizations of what it means to be a fan, church family, they only begin to scratch the surface of what it means when the scripture says, God is for us. And that's the title today. And boy, do we need help to get this. So let me pray. Father, please help us. Please help me to speak your word. Help me to re-speak it. Help us to hear it. In many cases, to re-hear it. To hear it clearly. To have our hearts warmed and opened and moved. And our eyes just lit up again. And maybe some for the very first time this morning. 
Please, Holy Spirit, as you do, help us in our weakness. In Jesus' name. Mm. All right. Church family, let's stand. And we are going to read this passage out loud together. We are now at the peak of Romans chapter 8. Remember, we were talking about our amazing trek through the, the mountains of Romans and Romans chapter 8 where we are coming to the peak and we're going to read this whole passage even though I'm only going to focus on the first verses so together with me ready what then shall we say to these things if God is for us who can be against us he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. All right, you guys can have a seat. Thank you. Uh, you cannot come away from reading this passage and not feel the sheer strength of these words. And yet we do need the Spirit's help. I'm reminded of, I just can't stop with the mountain analogies. Uh, my son and I went to Yosemite and we backpacked for his senior trip one time. If anybody's been to Yosemite and you've seen Half Dome or you've seen the face of El Capitan, the sheer strength the rock hard, unassailable, unfathomable, that's what we're at now. We are at that scripturally. We are at that biblically. We are at the very peak. And so from here on out, although I only focus on the first few verses, we're going to read this passage together. The last few weeks of our study in Romans, we're just going to keep looking at this peak. And we're going to look at bit by bit, facet by facet, face by face, the amazing truth that is, that is asked here. Part of the reason when we were breaking the passage down that we want to read this part again and again and again is there's a, there's a form to Paul's argument, what he's speaking to us. He has led us to this point. You know, we're using the analogy of hiking into the mountain, but we're now coming to, this is the pinnacle of his argument. We want to get it as a whole. So it's really interesting. Did you notice from the beginning, Paul starts asking questions and he asks a whole bunch of them depending on the translation, seven to nine. A lot of questions, and they're somewhat rhetorical, not mostly rhetorical. It's kind of like, you know, you guys know a rhetorical question. A rhetorical question is like, if somebody asked me, would you like five guys for lunch? Is the sky blue? Is grass green? I don't want an answer to that. I know everyone knows the answer. It means definitely, of course, right? That's 
uh, frequently the use of the rhetorical. But it's also these bang, rapid fire questions. Paul is drawing our attention to this truth. And he does it so powerfully. He's recapping arguments that he's made all the way through chapter 8. And Pete did a great job right at the beginning as he was calling us to worship. Highlighting some of those things that we've learned along the way over the summer, guys. It is God who justifies. Remember we read that. That echoes what Jimmy just preached last week out of verse 30. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined, he called, and he justified. We talk about justification earlier in the chapter as well. Who is to condemn, it said in verse 34. Remember the very first verse, Romans 8, 1. Who's got it? There is therefore now no condemnation. So he's echoing the truths, do you see? He's echoing it with these questions. Bing, bing. Oh, Christ Jesus is interceding for us. Verse 34, we talked about that. Verses 26 and 27. So, for today, for this morning, we're going to look at the first three questions that he asks in verses 31 through 32. And so, um, yeah, Paul, you can just leave this one up. This is it. That's it. What then shall we say to these things? The New Living Translation says, these wonderful things. I love that. Jimmy talked about last week the golden chain, which I had never heard of, and that theologians call the golden chain of being foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified. That's wonderful things, isn't it? The Spirit helping us in our weakness. That's wonderful things that He prays for us that we groan together with creation, longing for the redemption of our bodies that we know is coming. Jimmy said the glorification is guaranteed, is spoken of past tense as if it has already happened. It's that sure. Wonderful things. We're children of God, Paul told us in the middle of uh, chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, and fellow heirs with Christ. Remember Eric preached to us. He sees us the same as he sees Jesus. The same. That's wonderful things. Is it not? In Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. And thus, no longer bondage to the flesh. No longer debted to the behavior of our flesh. That's wonderful things. So much more. So, what then shall we say to things as these? How should we respond to all these amazing, overwhelming truths? When I was preparing this, I thought, what if we couldn't see what the verse said next? What if it literally said, what shall we say to these things? And the page was blank. We couldn't see the argument, couldn't see what was coming. And we literally stop and ask ourselves, what would we say? What would you say? Some examples. Maybe you can relate. I can. This is amazing. But I got my hands full with real life. Wow. Um, is, is that it, though? I mean, can we see like a real tangible sign? Or maybe, I, I just can't believe it. I just can't grasp it. I, I'm hurting too much. 
maybe it's just flat out, wait, what? That's like the standard response to almost anything these days. Wait, what? <laughs> Sounds too good to be true, too unreal, it's not my experience. Or maybe what we say is literally nothing because we're not looking, we're not listening, or we're not hoping. And there's all kinds of reasons why that might be the case. These are very common experiences, family, especially when we're in the now and the not yet, while we await adoption. Pete said we're on various rungs on the walk of our faith, various places. It's hard, life is hard, and we'll get to that. But remember, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. That was one of the wonderful things. So then, what shall we say to these things? I'm going to come back to this, but let's see what the Scripture says. It isn't, verse 31, what shall we say to these things, and nothing. I just wanted us to walk through that as if it was. Ask yourself, what kind of what would you say? Something to think about. But let's see what the Scripture says. It says, if God is for us, so you can stay on that one, Paul. If God is for us, who can be against us? This is how Paul summarizes the entire chapter. You want the cliff notes of Romans chapter 8? There it is. Ten word cliff notes of Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? You know, I was talking about at the beginning, I am for Manchester City. Make no mistake about it. They play West Ham at 11.30. I'm going to miss it because I go to preach at Frederick. But I guarantee you I'll be watching the highlights. I'm for that team. Love that team. Excited about that team. But I care way too much about what 20-somethings do with the ball. Wow. Like most of us do. It's trivial compared to this. But it gets at something, doesn't it? There's something compelling about being a fan, being for. I don't want to be too quick to minimize it because it's a very human experience. When the COVID hit and the pandemic hit, there was a lot of, you know, the sports shut down. It was wild. First of all, games went off for a long time. And if anybody's a fan, you, you go back and watch. I watched I, inordinate amounts of time watching soccer highlights. I think I've shared that before from, from the, the pulpit. Um, inordinate to everybody else. For me, it's fine. But, um, but it was fascinating watching players play with no fans. Empty stadiums, you can hear the players talking. They celebrate among themselves, but nobody's cheering. Just fascinating. There's something lacking in that experience. So, it, you know, we're, I don't want to minimize the fact that being a fan, you know, whether it's sport or movie or artist or whatever it might be, is very human experience. What I want to get at though, is it doesn't even begin to describe when it says, for God is for us. When I say I'm for Manchester City, that holds not a candle to what it means when it says God is for us. God is for me. God is a fan of you. Like Pete said at the beginning, do you want to know what God thinks of you? He's for you. Listen, He is for you. Deeper than we can possibly imagine, deeper than we can possibly grasp. God is for you. Church family, 
That is the summary of this chapter. That is the pinnacle. That is the peak. God is for you. What does it mean for God to be for us? What does that mean? Does that mean he's for me like I'm for the team? I hope you win? Standoffish? Nothing I do in my fandom will help Manchester City win. Ever. I haven't even bought a ticket. I bought a lot of clothes. I actually counted them. I, um, <clears throat> I have two hoodies, six jerseys, one shirt, a scarf, a knit cap for winter. Oh, soccer scarves are all about it, man. You've got to have a scarf if you're a soccer fan. Because yeah, you go to the games, you hold the scarf up. You know, so. And, and I didn't even count the soccer balls, which my excuse is I bought 10 soccer balls because I'm a soccer coach, and I think so they all say Man City on them. So. It, was just, it was a discount in the season. There was five bucks, so it was good. But God, that's, that's, what does it mean for God to be for us? It's like, I hope you do well. Hope you win tomorrow. Hope you do all right in that job you're struggling with. Hope your marriage works all. That's not what it means. Oh my goodness. It's not what it means. He's for us. Deeply. Personally. Absolutely. Thoroughly engaged with us. How do I know this? Gosh. Look at the next verses. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I want to spend more time on that, but I don't want to skip over. Skip over. If God is for us, then what does it say? Who can be against us? Oh, who can be against us? So again, without seeing the rest of the verse, let's imagine that it stopped there and there's a blank page. Who can be, I can come up with a lengthy list of who can be against us. Can you? A lengthy one. My crushing circumstances. My irreconcilable conflicts. You could summarize using biblical terms. The world, the flesh, the devil. That is a lengthy list of enemies against us. The world itself, broken in, in, in the, the scripture earlier said, bondage to corruption that our bodies are dying, that people get cancer, that people are struggling. The devil's attacks, literally his lies. John describes him going around seeking who he may devour. That's a, that's a serious against. And then I think, honestly, our own flesh, guys, our own selves, our own inability to see, our own feebleness, our frailty, our weakness, the weakness of our faith or the lack entirely of it, lack of affection, lack of desire, lack of understanding. I feel like that's the worst. Honestly, it's the worst enemy. It's like the devil and the world just jump on those, but I just hit it myself. I almost don't need any of the help. Do you guys feel that in your own experience? So when the scripture says, who can be against us? I think we need to bring these things into view and then realize that's what he's saying if god is for us those enemies don't even hold a candle who can be against us including ourselves who can be against us the rest of this chapter and all the rest of the verses that we're going to go through the next few weeks 
fill out the answer in no uncertain terms. No one, nothing. He is unassailable, unending, unfailing, unfathomable. He, in Christ Jesus, we are with him. Remember, it says, in Christ Jesus, we are with him. We are his brothers, his sisters, his family, his fellow heirs. And so in him, so are we unassailable. We're not limited. Who can be against us if God is for us? The answer is no one. How do we know this? Again, how do we know for sure? How can we know that he's not just saying this thing and then standing back? Because he got intimately involved with us in our lives. He who did not spare his own son, verse 32, but gave him up for us all. He who did not spare his own son. Okay, I'll do a trivial illustration of that and then a very serious, so the opposite ends of that. Um, those of us who are older may remember the Boston Red Sox. In the 2000s, what was it, 2003 or 2004, won the World Series. First time since 1918. I'm not a huge baseball fan, so I had to go look up the dates and remember that kind of stuff. But it, I do remember it was epic. Absolutely epic. And so there was a running commercial at the time. MasterCard, priceless, you guys remember this? Um, so they, they did uh, Boston fans, like here's what we would give if the Boston Red Sox would win the World Series. And guys like $5,000, you know, I'd give up my home. One guy was like, I'd give up my firstborn. So Comedy Central did a, a parody afterwards and they actually got, got the quotes. And then they did a skit, and it was hilarious because people were basically coming to collect everything that they said they were going to give when the Red Sox won, right? And so this, this dad is literally, the people are coming, lifting up the toddler, and the mom's going crazy, and the dad's like, the Sox won it all, babe. The Sox won it all. I can't do a Boston accent. It's just like, and we laugh because it's preposterous. As vigorous as their fandom is, no one's going to give up their firstborn. For a team. No one's going to give up anything of substantive value for a team. But that's why I was saying it doesn't hold a candle. Guys, this is a flip side. He who did not spare his own son, even when his own son asked to be spared. Did you know that? Do you remember Mark chapter 14 gives us an account of Jesus in the garden with his disciples? before he goes to the cross, literally hours before. And this is what he says. They went to the place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father. Did we hear those words earlier in this chapter? He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. It was a cup, the, the, the death, the sacrifice. 
on the cross, being separated from God, and all the experience of the wrath of God for our sin. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. He did not spare his own son, even when his own son asked. Church family, for all those who have turned from their sin and put their faith in this same Jesus, all of those who are in Christ Jesus, these words are not just from our Savior, they are from our brother, with whom we are fellow heirs. Romans 8.15 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. He did not spare his own son, but he says he gave him up for us all. Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Ephesians 5.2 again, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. This is how we know God is for us. It is not some ethereal, far off, I wonder what it is, maybe in my experience I'll eventually get it. Don't look to your experience to confirm that. Look to this truth. It is unassailable. It cannot be countered. Do you see that hope? This is the hope in which we were saved. When our experience does not match up with that, we put our faith in this. That's what it means to persevere through present day sufferings. We talked about that with Jesus. He gave him up for us all. And then it says, he who did not spare his own son gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Oh my goodness. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is the ultimate argument from the greater to the lesser. There could not have been a greater gift, a greater sacrifice, a greater cost than for God himself, the creator of the universe, to not spare his own son on our behalf. So the scripture is saying, you want to understand that God is for you? He did not spare his son. And if he didn't do that, then how much more then will he not give us everything? Every good thing. Everything that we need. But let's be careful. What does all things mean? Family, when we're reading the scripture, it is very important that we do not import our own meaning to the words. We must let the scripture speak to us. We must be read by the scripture. Did you know that? We read it, but we must be read by it. All things does not mean whatever I want it to mean. Where else in the chapter 
As Romans said all things. Well, we just studied Romans 8.28. And for those who love God, all things work together for the good. For those who are called according to his purpose. There's, there's a hint. Look where else in the scripture it says the very same words. Ephesians 1.22, he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Okay, are we starting to get it? Scripture talks a lot about all things. 2 Peter 1, one more. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Guys, these scriptures paint the picture of what all things mean. It is not what we want necessarily, is it? All things that pertain to life and godliness, Peter says, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. You hear the echoes of Romans 8, 28 through 30. So at the very least, guys, all things, all things includes things like eyes to see and ears to hear these wonderful things, these truths, hearts to believe it, and hope. He didn't just give up his son He's graciously giving us all things, even the things that we very need right now in order to grasp it. Church family, God knows where each of you are exactly. When Pete described you know, where you are on the, on, on the rungs and you're climbing the ladder of faith, as it were, the Lord knows exactly where each one of you are. And he is provided to you all that you need for the next step. How do we know this? Because he didn't spare his own son. There is no limit to what good God will do for us. Even to penetrating past our own frailty and weakness and sinfulness as individuals. Even then, he provides all things. So let me wrap. When we're reading scriptures, I want to encourage you um, in your own. I, I always want to do this. I always want to encourage you. When we gather on Sundays and we read and study together, it's a valuable time for us for multiple reasons. But one of the things I want to inspire you and really to challenge you and to equip you in your own reading is ways to come at the scripture yourself. Things I've said before and that we've talked about before collectively amongst the eldership team. Asking questions of the scripture, seeing what other scriptures say about that scripture, etc. Another helpful thing, especially when you're reading a passage, and for those of us who maybe have been Christians for a long time and are very familiar with these verses, it's very helpful to do comparative readings with other versions. At times, it just provides a new light, casts a new light. Eric has been preaching a lot out of the New Living Translation from Romans 8. That's an excellent translation. 
Really, really helpful view. I wanted to read for you these verses, 31 and 32, out of Eugene Peterson's The Message, which is a, a looser translation. It is not as literal, but he takes um, a more dynamic assessment of it and describes what the gist of the passage is. So here are these verses. You see them in the ESV, which is close to literal, close to literal translations. Here's the message. So, what do you think? With God on our side like this, how can we lose? If God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our condition and exposing himself to the worst by sending his own son, is there anything else that he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? Oh, I love that. Is there anything that he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? Church family, God is for us. God is for you right now, fully and completely. Far more and deeper than the most committed fan of any sport or any artist or any style or any history or anything we can imagine. He is personally, deeply, absolutely for us. Nothing begins to approach what God does for us because he is for us. Is there anything else that he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? Our God gave his own son up for us all. He graciously gives us all things. He works all things for our good. All means all. There's no exceptions. There's no, oh, I'm going to sneak through. Oh, no, he didn't see me. I'm irrelevant. I'm too... I'm too bad or I'm not worth it or whatever. There are no exceptions. All. He gave him up for us all. So let me invite you to stand with me as we close and we prepare for communion. I want to come back to the question we started with. The very first question in this passage. What then shall we say? It's not just a rhetorical question. It's actually the question that each of us needs to ask ourselves wherever you are on your walk of faith. What then shall we say? If you have not put your faith and trust in Christ, if you have not turned away from your sin and said, yeah, that fact that God did not spare his own son but gave him up that was for me because I needed that if you've never done that hearing these words this is an invitation to you these words what then shall you say to these things don't say meh don't say ah I don't know I got my hands full with other guys this is it this is the most important thing what God thinks about you personally the God who didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. What will you say to this? Can I invite you to say, yes, Lord, thank you. Can I invite you to say, 
I do, I turn from my sins, I trust in you. For those of us who have put our faith in the Lord, maybe for many years and maybe we've walked lengthy roads and painful trials, what then shall we say to these things? What shall we say? Oh, may the Lord help us to have hearts full of fresh faith and hope. I trust you, Lord, because you didn't spare your own son, but you gave him up for us all. Then how much more then will you not give us all things we need for life and godliness? Lord, I don't see it in this area of my life. I haven't felt it here. In fact, I felt the opposite, but I'm gonna trust in you because you didn't spare your own son even when he asked. So I'm gonna believe you over my feelings and over my perception and over what I see on the surface of my circumstances in the, in the middle of this broken world that's still in bondage to corruption when our bodies have not been fully redeemed and we haven't fully experienced the adoption of sons that is guaranteed to us to be fellow heirs, to be his brothers and his sisters. Church family, hear the call to faith. What shall we say to these things? We say, Lord, I believe. Let's take this communion together.